This Week in HPC by Intersect 360 Research. Better predictions in financial services. Insights from the HPC and AI on Wall Street Conference. It's This Week in HPC. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening in to another episode of This Week in HPC with Intersect 360 Research, distributed in partnership with HPC Wire. I'm Addison Snell with Intersect 360 Research. And instead of Tiffany Trader with HPC Wire, I'm bringing you to you two other editors from HPC Wire and Enterprise AI, John Russell and Doug Black, because we were all just at the HPC and AI on Wall Street conference last week in New York City, where we covered a wide range of topics looking at the future of technology and financial services, not only HPC and AI, but getting into big data and analytics, blockchain and cryptocurrency, IoT, cloud, hybrid cloud, data management, data sovereignty. We talked about all of it with some really expert panels and presentations throughout the two-day event. Doug, what did you think? Did you pick up any good uh, presentations during that conference? I thought a high point of the conference was a presentation from a man named Thomas Thurston. Uh, he is chief technology officer at W.R. Hambrecht, which is one of the leading, uh, te- you know, technology oriented uh, um, venture capital firms. They, they also invest in other industries, but a lot of it is tech based. And um, he and his team of about 10 data scientists have spent more than 10 years building a what they call a data-driven investment assessment system. It's really bringing machine learning, AI, deep learning into the process of finding good investment opportunities for the company. And, it, and he's done this in the face of um, you know, what, is, what is widely regarded as just an uh, acceptably high fail rate in the venture capital industry. And he um, has said he, t- he said he for more than fifteen years he has asked why do we have to accept that why don't we try to use data to improve the hit rate and also uh, save a lot of time that is generally spent in meetings with venture opportunities with entrepreneurs pitching pitching the venture capitalists which he said is is really not a very good way to select investments. In fact, he said those meetings are less rigorous, maybe methodological, less uh, structured than you might think. And a lot of those meetings are much more like what you see on Shark Tank. Right. And the problem is that uh, a lot of decisions become very subjective. They relate to personal chemistry, uh, between one's sort of sense uh, of of who these people are that are running these um, uh, these startups, and um, the long and short of it is that Thurston's system has improved Hembrick's uh, uh, hit rate three uh, x over the industry average, and they also spent much less time in meetings in searching for opportunities uh, and. Uh, all in all, it's been a raging success. Now, he was quite guarded in his details on how the system worked. I'd say that was possibly the one unavoidable shortcoming of his presentation. It's very proprietary. Again, they've been working on this thing for over 10 years. He's not about to uh, uh, reveal how the goose is laying the golden eggs. But in all, I thought it was it was a, a really interesting presentation on how data can be used in new ways to improve 
financial returns. You know, I agree with you. I thought that was maybe one of the most digestible individual presentations that we saw. It was something that the whole audience could engage in with this notion of how do we uh, evaluate a new idea. And it had some very quotable pieces, not only relating to the uh, the Shark Tank methodology of here's a panel of experts and, and they see a, your elevator pitch and you get a quick yes, no, but um, the notion that he revealed that being categorically the notion of I'm a new entrant into a market and I have a better product is fundamentally a poor metric for success. He says that in general, that's that's not one of the good categories that people should want to invest in, that when you look at the data, that doesn't go well. I was able to have lunch with Thomas right after that. And I would and another thing that I really enjoy about these conferences is the uh, intimate format where you really do get to have these one-on-one -on -one conversations. And, uh, and while it's true that they've been working on this for 10 years, and I think they've got a jump on everybody, I think it's also true that this is still a nascent area that needs a lot more development. I, I don't think they're sitting on something where they're like, hey, great, this is done. We don't need to deploy this anymore. And ultimately, I think there's a combination of uh, of of the uh, of the data analytics and the subjective, uh, much like uh, baseball scouting, you still need the professional scout. But there's a lot of analytics that are on the table that that we haven't been able to do previously, and and bring a more data focused sensibility to this. I I think that that really was very uh, forward looking from W R Hambrecht, and I really enjoyed that presentation. We talked a lot about different technologies as well. I got to moderate a panel on cloud and hybrid cloud. John, uh, that really got people going, this uh, conversation around hybrid cloud and in particular data movement and data sovereignty. What did you think? I thought that was one of the more interesting panels actually throughout the conference. Uh, nice job, by the way. But clearly uh, data, you know, which is a driver of AI, but it's a big data generally of uh, financial services is a huge issue. And the concerns have only grown with various regulations across the world, certainly in Europe. And so the uh, the conversation around data gravity, data ownership, you know, data locality was fascinating. I thought that and everyone says, let's let's find ways to present metadata and protect the data itself. But it turns out some of the individual regulators and it could be someplace in a small locale in Europe can make the decision that metadata is also a piece of data that you can't reveal. So that was that was kind of fascinating. And, and the notion of how do you then deal with that? Do, um, do you centralize your data? Uh, one of the things I thought was most interesting was this idea of what if we had co-located data where on-prem you brought in uh, a cloud provider for, you know, in this case, um, and they had the equipment, if you will, the technology. So in essence, it was under their control from a technical perspective in terms of moving it around, presenting it to applications, et cetera, but you still possessed it. Interesting idea. Um, I think that was um, something that got a little uh, traction among the panelists as well. No one quite knows how to do it well that yet, but, um, but a really good idea. The other thing I thought was interesting is we've had this conversation around uh, on-prem versus cloud for some time. 
And you know, is is on-prem going away? Is the cloud going to swallow up everything? Computing as a utility, and the, and you know, really, there hasn't been a great answer. It's been yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. And then we had uh, Don Burr from AIG talking about, well, look, let me be honest here. You know, at AIG, our data center um, is shrinking and will shrink. We are moving workflows and capability to the cloud. Um, I was surprised to hear that, quite so frankly. Um, you know, that that's sort of a didn't he didn't mention how much, but you get the sense that it was substantial, that there is whatever the technology challenges are, there still is this uh, you know, this drive to move more to the cloud for both uh, taking advantage of the leading technology that the cloud providers bring to bear more quickly and also to reduce costs. I think that surprised me. So, yeah, I thought that panel was one of the more interesting ones. Well, a big thing we got at this conference was discussions really down at the tactical level of where are we with these different technologies. And and this panel in particular, when we talked about the notion of data sovereignty, got into what's the difference between data possession and data ownership and which one are we really talking about here. And possession wound up being the more critical notion to most of the panelists. We got into even mentions of Snowball and Snowmobile as technologies from AWS. That tech, that conversation spilled over onto Twitter and kept going uh, throughout the uh, uh, throughout the rest of the day. If you look at the hashtag uh, HPCONWALLST for HPC on Wall Street or, or look at my Twitter handle at Addison Snell, you'll find some of those discussions because one of the panelists was critical of the AWS technology snowmobile and saying it only goes one direction. But uh, but I, I think on Twitter, there was a lot of defense of snowmobile in terms of the ability to also bring data back out of the cloud in a high performance way. So it, it was it was interesting that the, the whole community got into the discussion as, as part of what was going on in that panel. The, uh, the realities of these different technologies was a, a major theme that continued throughout the conference. And we even got people with respect to AI, which was, of course, one of the major themes of HPC and AI on Wall Street, talking about the notion of an AI winter or the AI hype cycle and what's going to be left there and what are our expectations of AI. Doug, you had some reactions to that that you were talking about during the show. Yeah, um, you know, we've certainly heard um, of these AI winters over the past decades, going back to the 50s. Um, and we've heard some talk of it quite recently. Um, but I, you know, one thing I took away from the event is that the I think there's expectation, not so much of an AI winter, but of a kind of a partial AI bubble. And this is where um, the industry, the market, gains a, a better, more more coherent understanding of what AI is best suited to do for now and for the medium future. Uh, probably in the longer term future, it will obviously gain in the breadth of its uh, capabilities, but, uh, but also disabusing ourselves of what AI really can't do, at least for now. Um, and, and so this gets at uh, uh, a more general realism uh, you know, and and understanding that obviously the vendors uh, are going to hype AI, but uh, you know that we're going to we're going to develop a better notion of what 
we can expect AI to do machine learning and deep learning and, and what we what we shouldn't expect it to do. Yeah, and that was those are themes that came into the final panel of the conference, which I also moderated in terms of where are we going to be with these different we talked about a lot of technologies that have been in some kind of a hype cycle, whether it's cloud or AI or blockchain or IoT. And we had a panel that really represented a, uh, a cross section of all of those technologies. And one of the questions that came up was after we emerge from the hype cycle, what's left that'll be the reality here? And we can point back to things like the dot com boom, the bubble burst on that, but we still had the web and the internet. It was still huge. We went through a big data hype cycle. We're not in that big data hype cycle anymore, but I wouldn't claim that analytics isn't still a thing. It's still very front and center. So after we get through this AI hype cycle, what are we going to be left with? And me personally, I'm looking forward to things like using AI or machine learning to manage tiered storage and get data onto the hot tier in a predictive way before uh, before the data is called for. I think that that's going to start defining high performance storage uh, in the in the future, particularly in these commercial or, or multi tiered hybrid cloud environments. Uh, I would expect that we're going to start to hear. The term predictive storage in the relatively near term, and that'll build more intelligence into it over time. We could look at it in terms of how AI starts to interact with HPC, and can we get things like AI in the loop and guided simulation or computational steering fashion? So, and that next to other predictions around cryptocurrency and whether governments will start issuing cryptocurrencies in a blockchain fashion. I just really enjoyed all of these uh, forward-looking tools. And John, you know, you're kind of looking at, all right, if we're going to do all of these things, what are the tools that are necessary? Because that was a, another critical part we finally got to in the conference of, uh, all right, we, we're going to need some of the actual middleware and tools to get all this to happen. Well, it's interesting, um, sort of talking to your point earlier that a lot of the conference centered on what I would call tactical use of AI, things that you can use today. Um, there is a, an area that's sort of emerging uh, AI in science that is, I think, a fascinating area where we'll get some of the answers to those questions about what will be next um, you know, as science really is late to the party here, it's true that it sort of developed the heterogeneous architecture that's kind of the standard for training now that's a CPU plus a GPU of some kind, an accelerator of some kind for training at least. And we've got other technologies for FPGAs, but really, you know, science did that to for its own purposes, largely simulation and, and, uh, and modeling. And what's happened in the last year and a half is that it's discovered that leveraging tools developed in the enterprise, all of the various frameworks, it can start to apply these AI concepts um, to science problems. And all of a sudden, there's an interest there that's going to come, I think, and, and develop a bunch of new tools. Uh, you see the start of this in the uh, AI for Science town hall meetings. So there's this program taking place now, which um, much like the Exascale program preceding it, is intended to gather input from the community and potentially launch a program like the Exascale program. And remember, the Exascale program had a billion dollars or so in hardware, a billion dollars or so in, um, in software. Uh, but gather the same requirements and put that into AI. 
And without doubt, um, some of the things that come from that are going to be useful in in the financial world. They'll not just be middleware and, and down there, but it'll be things like how do we apply it? So in the enterprise, image recognition, natural language processing, you know, those are sort of simpler tasks. Now, the financial committee certainly deals with other tasks than that and high dimensionality data. And in that sense, the things coming out of science will be much like that. You'll see this tackling of high dimensionality data. You'll see this effort to put um, AI to use in combination with simulation modeling and guide it. You'll, you'll see those kinds of things. Um, you'll see uncertainty quantification. Now, that's a huge question in, uh, in the financial world and not so much concern, let's say, in, in natural language processing. Well, the truth is science is also very concerned with that. So error bias, uncertainty, you'll see those kinds of tools. Likewise, likewise excuse me, um, explainability. There was a, a fair amount of discussion during the conference uh, around, you know, we don't know how these decisions are made or how will we call out the bias, for example, in loan approvals if we don't know exactly how these decisions are being made by uh, machine learning algorithms. That's a very similar issue in science. They want to understand um, why these things are coming about. Why, why is this algorithm producing this answer? Not just what the answer is, but, you know, what's the explainability because that's important. I think these tools, which typically you don't see developed um, in the commerce world, you will see in the next year and a half, two years. And I know that's relatively close term, but it's already happening. The uh, award-winning paper in ISC, I think it's two years ago from CERN, where they were able to dramatically speed up um, some of their simulations using AI to sort of say where to spend the, the, the high cost computation cycles and where not to. You know, you can use AI algorithms, AI concepts in ways um, that we're not using them in commerce that I think will come out of science. And the one last thing I, I wanted to say on this topic, and I did mention it briefly in the opening panel, and that is that there's this froth of uh, startups, 50 to 100, depends on whose numbers you believe, uh, well-funded for a change. We'll see how long that goes on. But in any case, whether it's at the chip level or the systems level or the interconnect level, Companies that are uh, now trying to sort of jump in and be part of that, almost all of those companies have NDAs with the various labs. And the labs want to understand where that technology is going. And they can afford to have the NDAs. These companies feel a little less threatened. So it is my sense that um, you know the AI uh, in science town hall meetings going on now are start of an organized effort to really ramp up these activities in science and that those activities will produce tools, technologies that are then used um, in the in the in the enterprise world and certainly in the finance world. It was really a jam-packed two-day event, more than we can talk about in one 20-minute content podcast. But our listeners can go get more uh, from the conference on HBC Wire and its sister publication, Enterprise AI. This conference will be back not only in New York next fall, but in 2020 will appear April 15th and 16th in Singapore. I'm looking forward to both and uh, and, and really a, an outstanding conference series. I appreciate Doug Black and John Russell for joining me on the podcast this week, and thanks to you for tuning in. You've been listening to This Week in HPC, brought to you by Intersect 360 Research, actionable market intelligence for high-performance computing. For more information, visit intersect360.com.